Kubrick is getting NASA to make sure that his space movie looks like real space. And so we're gonna use his space movie to make sure the real space movie looks like space. Do you understand how crazy that is? You think I had an ethical problem with this at all? This is like one of those good lies, like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. You are being paranoid. If they find out what we're doing, then you're dead. Have you heard of a conspiracy theory before? Yeah, I think we're in one. We ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. from intelligence. Pack your bags. You're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. Priority one, what do they want? Where are they from? You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the show. That's what they call him, the UFO. Who's being carted off in the medevac? Not everyone is wired for what you're about to do. So what do they look like? You'll see soon enough. Every 18 hours, a door opens up. That's where we go in. It's time. Yeah, that just happened. Good afternoon, Dallas Fan Days. How are you? Last day of the show, you guys sound like you've got some energy. I think we need a little bit more energy. Are you ready? Are you ready for these guys? All right. My name is Moises Chuyan. Uh, it has been a pleasure hosting a bunch of stuff for you guys this weekend. This is the last panel that I'm hosting myself personally, but later this afternoon in this room, we have Danielle Panabaker, we have Scott Wilson. Stick around for them. But for now, let's hear it. Let's make some noise for John DeLancey and Michael Dorn. Come on up. Right here. How's the weekend going for you? And John. See, the thing with the political process is that we... Yes, uh, I'm sorry, we just, we're, we're just out we've back. Been, so, we've yeah. been talking politics since we got here. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pastime that a lot of us are indulging in these days. A little yeah. bit, just a little bit. Something that, that I mentioned to you before, uh, before we brought you out is that uh, the two of you have, uh, have a lot of music in your past. Uh, Michael, you were, you were a rock and roll guy. Yes, I was. Uh, yeah, for many, many years. John, you're the, you're the, the son of the... 23-year serving principal oboist for the Philadelphia Orchestra. 
Yes, yes, and the uh, and the director of the Curtis Institute. So um, I, I grew up with uh, classical music in my veins. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's an oboe is a tough instrument, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's, it's like one of the most difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, the two of you have, have done so much voice acting between the two of you. I find it very interesting that you, you have this mutual history uh, in your personal lives of growing up uh, and, and being, being big into music. I mean, uh, John, uh, Michael, did, did you find yourselves at some point uh, deciding that you wanted to go into acting? Did you kind of you know, fall into it backwards when you were, you were really looking at maybe going into music instead? Well, I was, um, I, I guess you could say it fell into it backwards because I, um, I went to, I, I took piano and, and flute and played bass guitar and all that type of stuff and, and I was headed in the same direction. Um, uh, I was becoming, a, uh, playing music in the different bands but becoming a, a studio musician, which was something I really wanted to do. And I was making inroads in that and at the same time, the acting thing was happening. And you couldn't choose two of the toughest businesses, you know, to be in, you know, where it's, it's, it's really, really hard. I mean, the competition is fierce, you know, and it's a lot of times it's what you know. And um, luckily, I had, I had a couple of people that were that were very interested and helped me along the way in terms of the acting thing. And I mean, I won't go into that whole thing because that's a whole story but um, at one point it was seriously I was doing music and acting at the same time and I said okay I've got to make a choice I can't do both and I'll never forget I had a, a gig in San Diego when I lived in LA and we pile into this car and we head down there to San Diego and we play. And in those days, you played five sets, you know, of music, you know. And we played and and we and we said, okay, great, we're gonna pack up and leave. And the guy says, oh, we want you to play an extra set. And we said, well, okay, that's that's fine. Um, it's gonna cost you this much more because we're only contracted for this much. No, we're not gonna pay you that. What are you talking about? We're not going to pay you that, and if you don't play the sixth set, we're not going to pay you at all. And I went, okay, I'm going to go into acting. <laughs> you know, yeah, it was it was really really tough, and oh, it was, and the people that you played with, I always played and always got into with big bands like you know six and eight pieces like Tower. That wasn't Tower Power, but those type of bands, and. There was always some guy that showed up and didn't have his instrument for a gig or for we, we had a we had this one this one um, this one gig that we had it was uh, it was an audition for this big agent and he had you know designs and on us and stuff like that and we're all there and the drummer comes in and he sits down and we go hey Mike his name was Mike I said Mike uh, you ready where are your drums he goes I don't know. And what do you mean you don't know? I don't know where my drums are. <laughs> Big set, cymbals, every, you know, everything. <laughs> well, okay, well, explain that to us. And he goes, well, my um, girlfriend and I broke up, and she kicked me out, and she uh, got my drums, and she put them someplace, and I don't know where they are. <laughs> so so that, that was, uh, but I, I actually loved acting. And uh, so I went back to school and 
and um, studied and, and uh, kind of started all over again. That's my story. My, my situation was a little more uh, blunt. My father, um, and I just met the, um, again, uh, he took one of, he asked one of his teacher, or one of his students to be my teacher. So for six weeks, I, I guess I was maybe about 12, 13 years old, for six weeks, I took oboe lessons. And then he said, um, come into the studio, I want to hear your lesson. And about 10 minutes into me playing my lesson, he said, you're never going to be a musician, find something else to do. <laughs> Yeah. So I was I was released really quickly. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, and having come in having come in that year with with a report card of five Fs and a D, um, I think that my parents were looking for any port in a storm. So when I said that I was going to become an actor, they went fine. <laughs> One of the things that, uh, that your father's playing uh, was praised for was its extraordinary intensity, the very specific words used. And it's something that the two of you, your performances, the characters that we know you so well for, uh, that's, it's an aspect of, of what people love so much about not just Q and Worf, but the various different characters that you've played in voice acting. Uh, anybody here a fan of My Little Pony? One or two? Just a dozen? <laughs> Uh, you know, just, ju just a few. Everybody's just being polite. It's Sunday. They're, they're, they're a little more relaxed. A anybody a fan of gargoyles? How do you, how do you feel like your, your past in music you know, might, have, might have influenced the, the kind of radio acting that you do in voice acting? Uh, you know, you, you uh, John, you started Alien Voices, this, uh, this radio drama group. Um. Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of music. Every, every time you look at a script, uh, there is a rhythm, there is a, there's a vibration, there's, there's a musicality to a script, there's certainly a good script. And, um, and interestingly enough, the better the script is, the more easy it is to learn the lines, uh, which I think also has to do with uh, many things, but also uh, the musicality of the script. Um, so... I believe I picked that up from the environment in which I grew up in. And it's certainly something which I add to, the, to, to most of my voice work. I don't say, oh, well, I need to make this sound very musical, but um, I'm just aware of it. Is there a way that, uh, that your, your background in music has, has influenced the way that you, you work behind the microphone, Michael? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's very musical, actually. <laughs> very staccato. Yeah. No, I, um, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, um, the voice acting thing for me is, is, um, is a twofold thing. I mean, you got to, you, you know the lines or you, you, you read it and then you sort, you want to do what the producers want you to do with it, you know, kind of thing. Um, but I don't. I don't approach it in, in a musical sense. But it more like, um, you know, what are we trying to? What are we trying to convey? Uh, in, in a, you know, in, in script-wise, what what are you trying to say? What do you want this character to be? What do you want him to do? And that type of thing. Um, I mean, you you definitely can equate it to that. Believe me, there's there's, you know, you can go on and on about that. But that that's not how I kind of approach it. My approach has been uh, something different. 
you've both done a lot of cartoons in addition to video game voiceover work. And uh, on, on the cartoon side of things, even though it's not as common as it used to be, uh, you, you have group reading environments when you're doing those scripts, much more so than, than video games. Modern video games, they just kind of isolate you all at once. Um, what, what is the, the difference of the dynamic for, for the two of you doing that kind of work, being able to have people to play off of versus having a thousand page script to, to go through you know, in, in a booth on your own for four hours? I mean, the last, I mean, I don't know when the last time that I did, I think it may have been I Am Weasel, where there was a number of people in the booth. I mean, it usually is not like that anymore. For me, I mean, the stuff I've done, is, it's all been, hey, come in at this time, and, and you do your stuff, and that's it. There's no, there really isn't a group thing anymore. I don't know about John, but I, I, I haven't had that in 20 years, maybe, or something. Have they had you do any group stuff with My Little Pony, where you've got Tara and uh, all the other folks? No, uh, no, uh, because uh, <clears throat> in that case, I'm I'm in Los Angeles, and I'm talking to people who are up in Vancouver. Um, there, uh, Johnny Quest was the entire group, um, but m but most of the time it isn't. I mean, one of the things that I found intimidating, frankly, is that I would be brought in not really because I consider myself a voice actor. Um, voice actors, at least the, the ones in which uh, that's almost exclusively what they do, are a very different breed. Um, and it's fascinating to be around them because they are practicing, they create characters. Uh, I, had I had one experience where I was at a dinner after a show, and we all went to a dinner, it was exhausting. There were six guys there, and they were all talking like this. And I mean, they were bringing all of their characters out and what have you. It was an exhausting evening. Uh, 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 you know, in, instead of... Uh, not only are they doing that, but while they're working, they're auditioning for... Uh, uh for other roles, like they'll, they'll be doing, a, doing their voices, blah, 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 and then they'll, they'll do a whole bunch of other voices because the producer will say, oh, you know what, you did that voice, do this voice, or do that, you right, know, and right. so it's constantly, and you're like, you're like I mean, I'm drowning, yeah. you know, and they're like just going on and on and doing these things. Oh, and then usually what happens, I don't know if it happens with you, but what they'll do is that, you know, you'll come in. And let's say there'll be six, you know, five of them new. Yeah. And then they'll go, you know, uh, Bill, you're going to be playing pop, 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 pop roles. And, you know, and they're going and I'm thinking, oh, please, only my own role. Just, I just, I'm not really set up to do all of these other crazy voices that they have right at their fingertips. And, um, but that's what they do. I mean, and that's why I think they're terrific at it. They really concentrate at it. And it's closed. I mean, it's a very closed society, as yeah. they say, because th those six guys or five guys or whatever the case, that's all they do. And yeah. then they're the only people that they, that they call because they don't have time for anything. They, you know, the producers and the clients, we want this, 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 and they call them, and that's it, and they've heard them. So. And they know they, they're going to get it, yeah, totally. and it's simple. And they can, uh, you know, the whole thing could be cast in a matter of an hour as opposed to bringing people in. One of my favorite things is, is seeing you guys pop up in, in movies where, you know, I, have, I haven't done my, you know, I don't read through the cast list and know that you're going to show up. For example, John, in, in Rain Over Me, uh, which I saw at a festival screening, and then suddenly, you know, here's John Delancey in, in a record store. 
uh, in this uh, this Mike Binder movie. And uh, you know, Michael, you uh, you've you've shown up in the Ted franchise uh, in one of my my favorite comic convention set scenes in a movie. Uh, what what do you look for uh, when when you're you're being offered something like this? Is is it that you're attracted to the script? You're attracted to the people that you're working with? A combination of the two, that sort of thing. Um, well, <laughs> uh, you know, first of all, being offered, I, I'm not offered very much of anything. I have to usually audition for it. Um, and I, what am I looking for? I, I'm looking for something that that isn't, you know, that has a that, that that is a mean that's meaningful perhaps, uh, and if not that, at least it's something that I'm not going to be embarrassed about. Um, who it is that I'm going to be working with, um, you know, those type of things. It's um, it, it for somebody at my level, I'm not I'm not standing in the middle of a circle and looking around me and going, oh, I think I'll do that project now, and then that project. It usually comes to me in a very linear sort of way. I have had periods in my career where I was a little bit more in a circle. In other words, I had maybe two or three things that I could do. But that, you know, that, I'm, you know that's the Tom Cruise model, um, uh, which you're just wondering how you're going to continue this snowball uh, it, it, uh, going downhill for 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 me it's been mostly how am I going to push this rock going uphill Seth MacFarlane has very much gone after you guys though he has this this great deal of affection for the the TNG cast as many of us in this room do I'm sure uh, Michael how did how did uh, how did Ted 2 come to you uh, same thing we um, we we did the um, uh, he was a big fan of the show, and we did uh, Family Guy. Uh, a bunch of us did that, and um, uh, interestingly enough, um, I met him a little bit because you know the Family Guy thing was very fast. I mean, it was like 20 minutes, and you're done, you know. So, and w Jonathan and Patrick and I were having dinner. I think Brent was there also, maybe even Lavar, and we're having dinner at this uh, restaurant, and and. Uh, Patrick had just signed to do Blunt Talk um, and so he said hey you know we were talking to Patrick over the phone he says look you know Seth and this, this Jonathan guy who's the producer wants to have dinner with you guys do you mind sure so they came over and had dinner and that was it and then I swear it was just like a few months later I get a call and they say hey Michael would you be available to do Ted 2 and I go uh, yeah sure so and that was it. I mean, that's kind of how it happens. Very rarely it happens that way, but that's, that's how it happened. And, but luckily, because of Star Trek, because of, you know, I've been very fortunate to, um, to have done, you know, the, the shows and being part of it, it's allowed me to look at scripts and, and just do things that are very interesting. Doesn't matter about the size, doesn't matter about the money. I mean, the money, all of that stuff adds into it. It's not just that. But I've been able to to look at scripts and go, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to do that, or or say no. You know, I'm just you know. Um, I mean, Ted too with the he wanted to do makeup, and I haven't done makeup in you know in 12 years or 13 years, and I'd never do. I never do wharf makeup ever, you know, outside of the show, and so. Um, 
He said, would you? And I said, well, it has to be the worst makeup ever. <laughs> ever. Like, like because, it's hanging on with masking tape. Like just barely. And um, one of the girls that, um, that did my makeup on Deep Space, they contacted her and said, would you come and do Michael's makeup? And I said, no. I said, Camille. Camille, uh, I said, well, you, you, you can't do good makeup. And she goes, uh, okay, okay. And it was painful because she couldn't do any edges. She couldn't do anything on the nose. She, she goes, can I just blend? No, you can't blend anything, you know? <laughs> or can I just put the hair? No, the hair has to be coming off. And, um, but that was, that was like, even that was part of the charm of the show, of the movie. And I was fine doing that. And the uh, and everything else was you know I wanted to work with Patrick Warburton I think he's one of the funniest guys, so uh, so that's that's kind of how it it morphs into a uh, you want to do it, but like I said I'm very fortunate because I can I can say no or I'm going to pass on that where a lot of our brethren you know don't they they and that's the tough part about the business is that we are in the top ten percent. Not saying that we make oh, a lot of money, but we have an opportunity to to um, to do what we like and not just do what we have to. So, well, we want to get some questions from you guys out in the audience. We've got a microphone in each aisle. I've got a couple more for these folks while you line up. Are, are we like being interrogated here with the lights, or is that just for it's, the for the? Yeah, uh, I think there are four lights. There uh, are four lights. I think it looks like three, but I think there are actually four lights. That was that was the. Cheapest, easiest joke I had. Sorry, guys. Uh, so, Star Trek: The Next Generation. Talking about doing work that's important to you, doing something that means something. You've you've told many behind-the-scenes stories and, and this, that, and the other. And you you came on stage, you know, talking talk politics, and not to make this a political debate or anything like that. But there are very vivid themes of uh, of you know political science and and the way that governments work, the way that the future will work. You know, what is the ideal vision of the future? Um, how do you how do you feel like Star Trek is continuing to influence the way that the way that people are thinking about you know the the political discourse. I guess you could say that we're we're dealing with, uh, if it is. I don't think it's. I don't think. I don't think we're we're dealing with um, uh, political things in Star Trek anymore. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's an uh, the, the two movies are yeah are action movies, and uh, and it's and rightly so because that is what people want these days. That is what the buying public really wants. Uh, my cousin um, uh, just recently, uh, because the the new Magnificent Seven's coming out, my cousin said, oh, well that's great, but, and he got his daughter who's 30, so she's not a kid, and her husband, and sat him down, you gotta watch the original. You know, just to really, and they looked at him like he was rubbing two sticks together because <laughs> they were going, all they do is talk, and they were they were totally bored out of their skull, because like Magnificent Seven, the original, too much talking. I'm like, are you kidding? These guys, uh, they're blasting there are, like crazy. There aren't enough explosions per second. That, yeah, exactly. And I think that's what that's what's happening. But uh, but political, I I haven't seen anything political in, in the movies. Yeah, I I, I I don't know if we agree or disagree about this, but I, I think it's too bad. Uh, because one of the things in which I hear from the fans who come, and I have a sort of a, 
conglomerate image in front of me, and that is, is of grandfather, father, grandchild, you know, or, you know, grandmother, what have you, a, a family of three generations in front of me who talk very fondly about the fact that they saw the original Star Trek, and then when the, when the uh, next generation came about, which is obviously the ones that we were in, um, that was an opportunity to sit down with multiple generations and talk about what the show was about, that particular episode, in the way in which science fiction has always been really great, and that is, is that it's a new canvas, just like the, the Westerns where it was a canvas, but you here it was, it was taking place on a planet, so you, ha you were somewhat removed, or very removed, and you could talk about something that of a philosophical nature that might have, if you actually talked about it like right here, you would be too involved in being able to see what the, what the, what the issue was. And, but, but being able to see it at a distance, you were able to have a conversation about it. Um, it, it pains me a little bit that that, is not, that hasn't been maintained. Um, because I think that that's what made Star Trek, frankly, different from... I mean, I, I remember as a kid we, we, uh, watching um, you know, 007, you know, James Bond. Well, it, w it was about you know, the car that went off the cliff and the, you know, the, it was about all that stuff. But that sort of lost its flavor after a while when everybody could do it and the special effects became more and more and more and more. And um, <clears throat> I look at the current shows and I, and I go, well, I know that they're, they're, they're fine. The special effects are fantastic. But I wonder whether we are losing something, a secondary or perhaps more foundational thing of that, well, what is the issue about? What, 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 what is the thing that's made Star Trek so important to people? So. Now, the, the two of you are, have, a, have a unique status within the Star Trek canon of, of being uh, actors who've crossed multiple uh, series. Uh, you know, Michael, you, you were on all of The Next Generation. You were on a fair chunk of, of Deep Space Nine. John, you, you showed up in the first season of Deep Space Nine. You came back... Uh, with Voyager, what was it like coming back to those roles after finishing The Next Generation? Or, well, in, in the case of Deep Space Nine, it was still uh, contiguous with The Next Generation airing. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm in a very different position than Michael. Michael really was in the show. I was sort of a gadfly. I, I you know, I... Well, you were, you're I, the bookend of The Next Generation. Uh, well, even you, so. You were the I Alpha mean, and Omega. You know, I drop in. I, I, you know, Marina once said to me, have more lines in one episode than I have in an entire year, and 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 she didn't say it as a nice thing. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> so I, 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 she didn't say much. Of <laughs> um, <Hey>. So <laughs> my position was was always very tenuous. Uh, I was never really. I mean, uh, the people, the, the cast has been very nice to me over the years to, to include me, but I am, I, I'm, I'm at a peripheral level in all of this, although I clearly have been swept up in the 
in the, in the you know, in the tsunami called um, called uh, Star Trek. Um, uh, so, uh, so you should talk about this subject more than I should. No, I mean it's 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 it was um, transition was was very easy going from next generation to deep space. Um, all of it is is so happenstance. Uh, nothing was planned. Um, being in the the original movies, uh, the last original movie with them was happenstance once again. Um, so, so all of it has been fairly like surprising. You know, I get a call from the producer. Uh, I'm in Baltimore doing a video game, and I get a call. I don't know how they find me. You know, <laughs> they don't even. I you know I don't tell anybody, and they find me. And uh, I get a call and say, Hey, Michael, this is Rick Berman. How you doing? Uh, Fine. What do you? <laughs> he says, "Would you like to come back to deep space?" Uh, sure. And that was, that was it. That was kind of the. Of course, there was a lot of negotiating going on, which was horrible. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of what it is. But it wasn't um, it wasn't anything difficult or worth talking about. It was just worf. Here we go again. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask before we turn it over to the audience. Uh, there's, there's a new show called Star Trek Discovery coming. Is this, is this something that you would, you would have an interest in taking part in it uh, in some way? If mega fan Brian Fuller, uh, former writer on Star Trek Voyager, if, if he approached you guys with, you know, come, come hang out for an episode, come, you know, do a cameo, come play a supporting part, something like that? I, I would, I mean, like I would, I would say this, um, to anybody or to any project is that it just depends on the part. It really does. I mean, I, I, the one thing I don't want to do is I don't want to be, um, a, a, you know, a, what do you call those stand-up figures that you just set on the side and, oh, there's Worf. Anyway, we're going to be doing, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to be that. You know, if it's, if, it's, if it's a great part, then yeah, you bet. It would be geriatric Q coming. <laughs> I could play it as if I got somehow stuck as a human and I'm really pissed off. <laughs> or, like, or like his powers aren't as great and he only disappears, only the top part disappears and his, his legs are running around. That's right. You know? That's Hell, right. I used to do the whole body. <laughs> Oh. Well, we should have the audience. Here. Yes, right over here. Yes, absolutely. All right, and now the next one. <laughs> it's funny you asked it. Yeah. We got. Let's go over here first, then. Okay. I'm working. This one's not. There we go. Yeah. It is. Okay. Good. First of all, I want to say love you guys. Thank you for coming. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, John, that you'll be. Whether it's geriatric or not, would love to see you because Q's on, you know, internal can show up anytime, anywhere. It'd be great to see you on the, a future episode. I'm internal? Is that what you said? Eternal. 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 a little more enunciation. Yes. Intern I'm internal. Internal Q. Either way. Okay. <laughs> Michael, you once said you wanted to. Hey, this is CNN. Opportunity. Did Years ago, you did that in an interview. You said you always kind of wanted to do this. This is CNN, you know. Oh, oh, yeah. You know, there was a there was a point where I was just waiting for James Earl Jones to um, to retire. 
just just waiting because you know I just I just love his stuff and I was just say okay I, I want to do that. I actually had a chance. Um, ESPN um, called me and wanted me to do a James Earl Jones. They say this is ESPN, <laughs> and um, but we did it and it didn't go anywhere, I guess. <laughs> um, but no, um, but now there's there's so many great, you know. I mean, uh, James Earl Jones maybe he doesn't do it anymore, but Morgan Freeman now, oh my God! I mean, come on, I'd listen to Morgan Freeman, you know. <laughs> And uh, David Keith, Keith David, who was Gargoyles, the uh, 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 Goliath. Uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, voice. So I, I think I'm dead. We get over here. Gentlemen, do you do any impersonations, say, of your mother, your father, or your castmates on Star Trek? Who do, who do you like to impersonate? Did you ever impersonate each other uh, on the set? Do you, you know? Do you like uh, you know making fun of one another? No, because you know I could just do this and. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that um, we we do impersonations, but they're just sort of you know for our own personal you know thing. Um, uh, Marina has. At the very beginning, the pilot episode, she had this strange kind of accent. I don't know what she was doing, but but it was uh, it, it, a great joy and gratitude. I mean, she, that's the way she talked, you know, because she was being a, an alien and um, and Patrick and you know, it just they were spur of the moment things, but not Brent is the one that does the best. Yeah, he Brent, does. Brent's the one who's got like a, like a suitcase does, yeah. of him. Yeah, he he reminds me of Dan Aykroyd because it's not about him being perfect, but he captures the essence. Like he always used to say that I was, I talk like this, well, hey, how you doing? <laughs> the Michael Dorn, you know, and so, and he would call up and <laughs> it was very funny. He called up one time and, and it's, he, he was like, hey, Mike, how you doing? This is Mike, you know, and, <laughs> but it's, you know, Brent and I did a thing. We did dueling Gregory Pecks. We did Dueling uh, Marlon Brando's. Um, Are you gonna give us your Marlon Brando? Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> Over here. Hi, my name is Abby, and I really love My Little Pony. Mr. Delancey, what is it like to play Discord in My Little Pony? Mr. Delancey, Abby would like to know what it's like to play Discord. Um, well, um, I enjoy playing Discord. I, uh, a lot of people, including the person who hired me, um, uh, I'll tell you quickly what the story is, and that is, is that apparently, and I didn't know this until a year or so afterwards, but the person who hired me, who created the character, then went to the network and said, I have this new character. And she was trying to explain the character. And the people, the, the, the suits were going, well, I don't, you know, I'm not quite sure. And finally she said, he, he's like Q on Star Trek. <laughs> and they said, oh, do you think we can get John Delancey? <laughs> and she said, well, I'll find out. But I don't really look to play Q at, in every <laughs> every character that I do. So 
so I didn't even pick that up when I was doing, when I was reading it for the first time or even the second time. What I did pick up in my mind began to form in terms of a character, and you might be a little young for this, was Oscar Wilde, a very flamboyant, very articulate, very sort of, you know, a little bit of a razor blade sort of tongue. now, one could say, well, that's just like you, but um, not really. And so in my mind, I think of it a little bit more like Oscar Wilde. And, but clearly, there is, a, uh, there is a common thread between these two characters, and it's me. <laughs> Over here. Hello, gentlemen. My name is Pat, and I'm a choir director, and I'm overjoyed that the first thing you speak of today is music. And I was thank I like gay musicians in the audience because John just a few years ago I was thrilled to be in the audience when you performed with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra and then two years ago I was in the audience again when Jonathan came down and performed with the Fort Worth Symphony so here in a celebratory year of 50 years of all the wonderful Star Treks including my favorite the Next Generation. And they're putting action figures and and magazines and books. Don't you think it's a wonderful thing that the music of each of the Star Treks will bring in a multi-generational audience to many a concert hall in this country? And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that and any thoughts that you might have for our uh, folks that might want to take the arts out of the schools. Oh, God. I, I, I like the complexity of this. Well, John, you, you were responsible for a Star Trek music uh, uh, program that, that, that was put together, Yes, um, um, Eric Kunzel, who was uh, a marvelous <clears throat> conductor, uh, asked me to create a show, for, uh, a Star Trek show. Um, I, 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 as we talked about before, I grew up in the symphony orchestra. I mean, I, I grew up... As a, as a kid going to, to orchestra concerts. I probably saw more, or I know I saw more orchestra concerts by the time I was 16 years old than most people see in their entire life. And so I really knew the orchestra. And then I then um, got involved in narrations, and then after narrations, I began creating big shows for orchestra where I brought back uh, Romeo, where I did, let's say, did Romeo and Juliet, but there are 33 composers who have written music uh, on that theme, so I was able to to organize something like that. Um, I think it's really important, especially since music is no longer taught in the schools in in the way it used to be, um, uh, that that we find ways of being able to bring audiences in. One of the things in which I thought was terrific and what I would talk about when I was pitching the Star Trek shows, I said, listen, you heard this music, Goldsmith's music, one, through a speaker this size when you were watching it on television. But to be able to come to an orchestra and hear it with a hundred musicians on stage is really a completely different experience. Uh, my wife uh, was involved for many years with the Master Chorale in Los Angeles. I used to be the, uh, the host of the children's concerts uh, for the LA Phil. I also created an, a, 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 um, 
series called First Nights, which were children's concerts for adults. Uh, and so, uh, and, it, and it pains me greatly that, uh, that arts are the first thing that are, 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 are um, taken off the, um, the table. I mean, one of the things, and I'll finish up really quickly, I try, I, I have explained to people who don't quite understand. When you have a, an eight-year-old kid, and it's a baseball game, and I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a, f a sports fan, but, uh, but I'm using this as an analogy. You have a baseball game, and, and it's, you know, the bases are loaded, and there's a lot of, of, of focus and attention going on, and the pitcher is there, and this kid has to hit that ball. That focus is a really important experience to go through because that's the type of focus that one begins to build on to become more and more successful in life. Well, some kids get it being at the plate, having that ball thrown at them. But other kids get it by having to sing the song. Or in my case, as a 14-year-old kid who was dyslexic and, and had already flunked out of two schools and what have you, I got it when I was simply told. It wasn't like I said I wanted to do it. When my teacher came in in March and said, in two months from now, we're going to do Henry V, and Delancey, you're going to play Hal. And I had to learn it, and I had to deliver it. Well, that was the focusing moment in my young adulthood that sort of informed me for, frankly, the rest of my life. So that's what the arts can do. Not only can they be appreciated, but they can also be a wonderful way of of, well, I use the word again, focusing one's life. And, and uh, so, there, there you go. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay. Anything to add? Oh, no. I, I agree. I mean, we, we grew up with music and, and all the arts, and which, was, which was fantastic. And um, uh, as, as as our society is going, and I don't see how it's going to turn around—not for a while—but to um, it's it's amazing that music and all of these things and is just going by the wayside because it has nothing to do with with you know killing and and politics and all this type of stuff. It's just a a pure form of of the human spirit. And I really love that, you know, but. But uh, it's really too bad. The first thing to go is music and, and all this stuff. In fact, interestingly enough, my, my girlfriend, her daughter, is, has a mild case of um, autism. And I've been trying to, you know, being a musician, I've been trying to say, you know what? She could do this. You know, this is something. And I tell her all the time, I said, you know what? Because she's very shy and she's very sort of like, you know, she you know, a little, uh, what do you call it, uh, self-esteem issues. I said, you know what? You just need to get one thing that you do better than everybody else. And this could be what you could do. You could be the best clarinet player, clarinet, best clarinet player in the school. And then that will propel you. And, and, and like I said, and, and a very interesting, James Earl Jones, we talked about him, he had a bad speech impediment. And acting was the thing that got him out of that. That was he was able to uh, to overcome that. So, 
you know, these are all arts, you know, and it's, it's just crazy that, that we focus on so much other crap in this world uh, besides that, you know. And it, funny thing, it would lead us down a different path, and uh, which, which one day I hope. I, I just got the signal, and I'm, I'm glad that our last question came from an educator oh. and was that wonderful uh, in particular. Uh, you guys will be back at your tables uh, after this. Anybody has any questions, definitely come and see these guys. Uh, but I, I'd be remiss if we didn't close out asking how, how this 50th anniversary year of Star Trek has, has treated the two of you. Have, have you been you know, going, going all over the place and, and, uh, and, and getting, getting, a, getting yet another layer of, of experience of being part of the madness? It's freaking insane. It, it truly is just crazy. We started in 2012 with the 25th anniversary of Next Generation, and I was—we were just blown away. I mean, it, to have this—to have this level of of, of uh, fandom out here still after all this time is is crazy. And um, and next year it's the 30th for us. <laughs> for us. For us. And 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 like you said, it's. It's, it's crazy. I mean, our first year in 2012, we're doing the 25th, we're in Calgary, and there were 30,000 people up there or something, you know? So, uh, hey, thank you. <laughs> Believe me, it's, 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 yes. it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's thank them one more time. John Delancey and Michael Dorn.